was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race. And still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail five years before his assassination on a Memphis hotel balcony. Welcome to The Shrinks on Third, our psychology and social justice podcast. I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. And I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. Welcome in. You know, Julie, a lot of people have heard of segregation, have opinions about segregation, even think we no longer have segregation in this country. True, Cindy, but I bet most of us educated in the U.S. don't really know that much about it, or at least as much about it as we think we might. That's why today we're going to look at the history of segregation in this country. And we'll start by defining it. Segregation involves separating certain groups of people in terms of housing, education, and other services. It can range from deliberate, systematic persecution to more subtle discrimination or even self-imposed separation. Forced racial segregation was written into the United States law many times. U.S. leaders have wrestled with what to do with enslaved people since the beginning of slavery, and the arguments continued about what the fate of slaves should be once they were freed. Some wanted to colonize or control them either by returning them to Africa or creating their own homeland. Instead, we chose segregation. Failing to include indigenous and African-Americans as full people in the Constitution led to segregation being basically embedded in society and in our laws really early in our history. Before the Civil War, free black people in the North faced segregation in every aspect of life, in voting, in schools, public spaces. State Supreme Courts ruled that requiring separate and equal, and I say that in air quotes, schools for black people did not violate the right of equality. Specific laws also weren't always necessary to keep races apart because segregation was what they called de facto, which means it was just the reality of the time. It was a fact. Segregation isn't always the result of legal or what's called de jure segregation. It's a result of systemic discrimination. Discrimination has affected where people live and therefore where they go to school and it perpetuates segregation. So after the Civil War, millions of formerly enslaved African-Americans were eager to join the larger society as full and equal citizens. Some white Americans welcomed them, but others used racism and self-interest to hold onto their power. A lot of white Southerners didn't accept racial equality and adopted segregation as soon as Black people were free from slavery. 
This demonstrates the depth of white racism and the difficulty of overcoming it. Right, even after the US abolished slavery, black Americans continued to be marginalized through enforced segregation and the so-called Jim Crow laws. Everything was segregated, housing, parks, schools, education, employment, hospitals, theater pools, cemeteries, jails, water fountains, you name it. There were separate waiting rooms and professional offices, separate phone booths. People believed that black and white people couldn't, or more accurately, probably shouldn't coexist. Basically, white men established segregation to reinforce their control and to deal with their fear of black people. Segregation wasn't voluntary, it was coercive, and it was part of an attempt to maintain black subordination. Laws were created to deny equal opportunity to African-Americans and keep them separate. And if they overstepped boundaries, they were forced back by law and often by violence. By the time the Supreme Court ruled that African-Americans were not US citizens in the awful Dred Scott decision of 1857, they were already excluded from seats on public transportation and from entering most hotels and restaurants except as slaves. When allowed into auditoriums and theaters, black people had very limited seating. It was designated and they were typically way at the back or something like that. They had to pay inside and then they had to go back outside to a side entrance and upstairs to sit in the balcony. And if they wanted a drink or a snack, they'd have to go back downstairs, go out, go in, come back, etc. That's crazy. Yeah. When slavery was abolished and the 14th Amendment gave citizenship and equal protection to African-Americans, then the slave codes or black code laws passed, basically as soon as emancipation happened. The codes dictated most aspects of black people's lives, including where they could work and where they could live. Basically, they ensured a submissive and a cheap labor force. Not entirely different from slavery, really. The 15th Amendment barred racial discrimination in voting, but allowing black people to vote threatened the power white men held because guess what? There were a lot of black people who had been brought over for generations as slaves. Suddenly they were a large part of the population. Denying them the right to vote was the first of their freedoms taken away. Most Southern black people lost their right to vote through measures like poll taxes and literacy tests. To stay in power, segregationists had to suppress the black vote and they've continued to do this more and more in ways that are increasingly sophisticated. Does that not sound familiar with what's happening today? Yes, it's still happening, Julie. There's been progress and backlash all along the way. In 1875, the outgoing Republican-controlled government, remember Republicans were progressive back then, they passed a Civil Rights Act against discrimination in public places but it was barely enforced and overturned by the Supreme Court eight years later when it was declared unconstitutional to take away the rights of private companies to discriminate. See how that works? Like companies have rights. We still have that problem too. Mm -hmm. The US Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 upheld that racial segregation was constitutional based on the rationale of the treatment being, again, in air quotes, separate but equal. And segregation became even more entrenched. But separate was never equal and was never meant to be. Black education has never been funded equally and full access to quality education has never been given. 
Much less has been spent for black schools. They've often had to use old textbooks, usually hand-me-downs from white schools. Arthur Evans mentioned this in our interview with him for this podcast. That's right. Yeah. Uh, new progressive programs focus in white schools while black schools were neglected. Black residents created independent communities to escape white rule. There were black business districts with independent businesses. That makes me think of the Tulsa, you know, the Black Wall Street. Yep. Colleges were segregated and separate black institutions like Howard University in DC and Fisk University in Nashville were created. These black community neighborhoods developed everything from stores to movie theaters, banks, insurance companies, health services, barbershops, entertainment, churches, funeral homes, libraries. This was what it was like in Tulsa before the massacre, which we talked about in another episode in November of 2020. Yeah. So no sooner did they gain their freedom when the situation of Southern Black people deteriorated. White Southerners focused on reducing African-American rights and tightening enforcement of Jim Crow. The longest lasting forms of segregation were in the South, but the North was also complicit. Yeah, pretty much everywhere, African-Americans lived in distinct neighborhoods based on lower income, as well as a desire to live among their own people, as many ethnic groups do. But realtors, landlords, and homeowners also steered Black people away from white neighborhoods. Some cities instituted zoning laws that kept Black families from moving onto white streets. We talked about redlining in a pretty recent episode. It required a mass civil rights movement to overthrow Jim Crow as much it is as it's actually been overthrown. Yeah. Communities of color have always had to fight for rights, for equal access, for basic human dignity and equality. Desegregation in education, transportation, and so many other areas has been a long struggle led by people who experienced or saw the injustice of American segregation. And it has involved a lot of court battles, legal battles, and it just continues to this day. And they had to have huge courage to do that fighting, but it, it's not just courage. How can you live under such indignation and violence? I imagine you could feel, what have you got to lose? The guy who said, give me liberty or give me death was a white guy named Patrick Henry. So those white guys knew how horrible it would be to live without liberty, basic freedoms, they would rather have death. That's some of the hypocrisy of the patriarchy and white supremacy. Yeah. It's not so much that black people wanted so badly to hang out with white people, <laughs> but ending segregation had to do with equality, actual equality, getting people out of color, out of poverty, you know, reducing illiteracy and second-class citizenship. African-Americans fought to desegregate education, not because they wanted to be with the white students, but because they wanted to get the quality education that the white students were getting. Black people needed, and of course they still do, equal access to jobs, affordable housing, decent health care, and fair treatment by the police and the judicial system. You know, after fighting for the United States against fascism and racism abroad during World War II, African-Americans came home to segregated schools, neighborhoods, and whites-only signs in public places. Homeowners actually used to sign promissory notes precluding the use of their property by 
any person not of the Caucasian race. And even though these were found to be unenforceable in court, they found loopholes continually to keep real estate segregated. And then after the Fair Housing Act in 1968, which barred white homeowners from explicitly refusing to rent or sell to black people, realtors no longer openly refused to rent or sell to black people. But they continued the practice of discrimination by doing things like excluding listings from black newspapers, lying to black customers about availability. Go listen to our episode on redlining if you're interested in this. They would create maps with marked areas, considered bad risks for mortgages in a practice that was known as redlining. Typically outlined black neighborhoods. Even as these ended, these mistreatments and segregationist policies, credit and loans were extended on unfair terms, creating a higher rate of foreclosure in black neighborhoods. And banks often rejected mortgage applications from qualified black buyers. All of this making it difficult for black families to move into white neighborhoods, which also made it difficult to meaningfully integrate schools or society. White people have also rioted and threatened harm or violence when black people moved or even expressed interest in moving into their neighborhoods. Right, you could listen to our episode on the KKK if you're interested in that. (laughs) It's the same old pattern, white supremacy. It took presidential orders and military backup. After World War II in 1948, President Harry S. Truman issued an executive order that forced the integration of the armed forces, but it still took three years for the army to fully act on this order. The continued migration of black people to the North and the West gave African-Americans increased voting power to help pressure the government to pass civil rights legislation. Southern black communities also organized and mobilized. Many black military veterans and college graduates challenged their treatment. Black women were also a significant force behind the civil rights movement. The fight to desegregate education also had to go all the way to the US Supreme Court. The court issued its historic Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas in 1954 that finally led to the beginning of integration in the US education system based on a case filed after a seven-year-old girl, Linda Brown, was rejected from all white schools. The decision reversed the Plessy decision that separate but equal was okay and decided that racial segregation was inherently unequal and a violation of the 14th Amendment. It declared all laws establishing segregated schools to be unconstitutional. Even once signed into law, desegregation of schools was a totally explosive issue. It took years for some states to get on board and some had to be forced by military backup. And I can't imagine being one of those children who goes into a white school and has to deal with the unbelievable hostility from the white students. There was so much protest, even from the beginning that a follow-up opinion gave decision-making on this issue to local courts, which of course allowed districts to once again, ignore desegregation. This led to a showdown in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, when President Eisenhower deployed federal troops to ensure nine black students entered high school after the governor there had called in the National Guard to block them. 
And it was six years after Brown versus Board of Education when Ruby Bridges had to be escorted into a New Orleans elementary school by armed guards. Although whites fought hard against it, ultimately desegregation helped many students who attended integrated schools to actually become less racially prejudiced and more comfortable around people of different backgrounds. But after high school, their lives once again become segregated as they re-enter a racially divided society. Uh, it's so annoying because if people were just integrated throughout school, there would be a lot less prejudice because once you know somebody, you can't just make up horrible fantasies about them. <laughs> right. Anyway, to implement Brown, courts ordered the transportation of students to public schools outside of their segregated neighborhoods. This had its own complicating factors. Many school districts implement, implemented busing plans in the 70s and 80s. Which white families across the country organized opposition to. They didn't like forced busing, as they called it, and they attacked buses carrying black students to white schools with whatever they could. There were some seriously violent brawls that had to be quashed by the National Guard. So basically every aspect of desegregation has been a struggle. There even had to be a court order to force private businesses to follow the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The courts had to defend legislation allowing black people to integrate in many areas of employment. At work, quitting a job was often the only way to resist mistreatment on the job. And obviously people need jobs to feed their families and keep a roof over their heads. But openly resisting abuse was dangerous. So under Jim Crow, African-Americans often had to change jobs, leaving whites complaining that black workers were unreliable. They were also confined to the least paid, least desirable, most dangerous and unstable jobs. Courts had to step in to prevent racial discrimination in public places like restaurants. And the courts even had to integrate love, finally ruling in Loving versus Virginia 1967 that all laws prohibiting interracial marriage could no longer be enforced. Can you believe all this? What is wrong with people? Why would we need this US Supreme Court to uphold civil rights for black people or for anyone? It all seems so obvious. It's money, competition, greed, things capitalism promotes and terror that black people will have political influence. A lot of the information that's written is written in the past tense. But so much of this is, is ongoing, it's happening today. Sometimes it looks a little different, but it's the same principles. Yeah, I think it's out in the open more than it has been in decades too. Until the civil rights movement fought systemic segregation, thousands of African-Americans and other minorities were brutally hurt or killed by white vigilantes who decided that they should take the law into their own hands. Rosa Parks was arrested for being too tired to give up her bus seat to a white man, too tired from her very hard day at work, or just too tired of constantly caving in this way every day. Fortunately, a lot of white people joined the civil rights movement, but... Millions of white Americans joined a mass movement of violent opposition to it as well. Right. Here's what Dr. Martin Luther King had to say about it. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans 
and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race. And still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted out by strong, persistent, and determined action. That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail, five years before his assassination on a Memphis hotel balcony. And rooted out is what we're trying to be persistent at doing. Yep, hard work. It took all kinds of legislation to outlaw discrimination and try to approach treating everyone like equal citizens, but people are always finding loopholes. School segregation is still deeply entrenched in some areas. Some Southern schools didn't have integrated proms until the past 10 years. Wow. A lot of people are tired of hearing about the struggle for equal opportunity, civil rights, and non-discrimination. People on all sides of the issue have grown tired, cynical, angry, sometimes violent. Civil rights and non-discrimination beyond the moral and ethical make the most sense, actually the most sense economically and for the social good. So we can't get tired of hearing about it. We have to keep fighting. And I also have to add, there's not necessarily all good people on both sides. No. <laughs> and the struggle continues. Where people live affects so much of their lives, such as access to transportation, education, employment opportunities, and good health care. Right. Segregation between Black and white Americans is still high. Black-white residential segregation perpetuates an enormous wealth gap and excludes Black students from high-performing schools and opportunities. While some see residential segregation as natural because people naturally want to live among their own, Black-white segregation in America is basically a result of deliberate policies over many generations that promoted white supremacy. Segregated schools across the U.S. have begun to surge again, particularly in the South, after a 1991 court decision declared that the laws against segregation were only meant to be temporary. Schools with more students of color still spend hundreds less per student than schools that are mostly white. And residential segregation between Black and white Americans remains very high more than 50 years after passage of that 1968 Fair Housing Act. And voting for Black people is currently on the chopping block in key areas. I mean, just think about what's been happening in Georgia and Texas, Arizona, and maybe even Pennsylvania here. Allegations of voter fraud are the made up way to rationalize this. Judges have ruled multiple times that the clear intent of this and other tactics is basically so obvious. It's removing African-Americans from voter rolls but they keep persisting. We need to make sure both educators and students and everybody understand differences based on race, gender, physical ability, anything else, and translate that into healthy ways of thinking and behaving that create responsible citizens working for social justice and equity. Ideally, the people that we elect to our government at all levels should be models who set an example and work hard to change unfair policies. Although that is certainly not the case a lot. We do not have that. No. If you're interested in learning more, there are a couple of good things to look at. Uh, 
couple of books, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America by Ibram X. Kendi, and The Case for Reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Also, Dismantling Desegregation by Gary Orfield and Susan E. Eaton. Thanks for joining us today. True story. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Till next time. Take care. <laughs>